0: Hello, and welcome on today's episode of Partially Excited. My name is Aaron Dowd. We've got Dr. Kim Harvin. And wow, this this girl's a genie in a bottle from lecturing to writing a book and an author. Hello, Dr. Kim. How are you doing today? Wonderful, Erin. It's an honor and a joy to be here
1: with you. Kim, where are you from? I live on the East Coast of the United States in Pennsylvania and New Jersey. I grew up in North Carolina and I've always lived on the East Coast for the most part. So I'm an East Coast girl.
0: Ah, so you lived in the Horseland area. Yes. And and probably growing up, you, you did you like horses or is it just something that was around you, all that kind of?
1: So Erin, my story about horses is really fascinating. I was petrified of horses for my whole life. Life until about two years ago. And um, I did not grow up with horses. I, I saw them, of course, but I was just literally terrified. And a couple years ago, I was going through a very, very difficult time in my life. And I thought, if I took on something that I was deathly afraid of, if I broke through that fear, I had the sense that it would have a very positive ripple effect in my life. So I actually lived near a horse farm, lots of horse farms, and I discovered one that had equine facilitated learning, learning with horses. And so I engaged this woman, Mindy Chernoff at a place called The Resonant Horse and uh, went there and said, Mindy, I'm petrified of horses. Help me break through my fear. And within just a couple of sessions, I became enamored with horses, in love with horses. So I've spent the past couple of years learning from horses and they've been some of my greatest teachers. And breaking through that fear did have a huge huge ripple effect positively in my life.
0: Do you ever think where that fear came from?
1: Oh, uh, I think it was fear that I couldn't recover from a broken heart. And I don't know, where does somebody discover the fear of not recovering from a broken heart? I I have no idea, really. I had um, a pretty difficult childhood in some ways, and my heart was broken very early in my life. Um, and so I think I carried the, the fear of my heart continually breaking throughout my most of my life, in fact, <laughs> I have tears in my eyes just the thought of it. Um, and I've never been asked that question, so thanks for asking
0: such a deep, provocative question. I'm worried because, like, horses are noble animals, and they're so kind, and I'm just amazed how someone can have a fear of them. You know?
1: Well, but they're also 1,200 pounds, and I feared I would get trampled on or bitten, or that I couldn't relate to them. Um, so I don't think my fear was. Uh, Un, un, unexpected or un, whatever the word is, not, you know, it was a natural fear to me, but the joy of breaking through it was really something, really, really something.
0: And how did you eventually break through? Um,
1: well, first of all, I was willing to be near them. Uh, and I worked with Mindy and she taught me about horses, what to look for, how to know when they're safe to approach, where to touch them, where not to touch them. And um, we did some really deep exercises. the one I remember the most is this beautiful black horse named Rocky. I was very very sad at that time in my life and she had me lay my heart over Rocky's middle you know with my arms over to the other side and just cry out all my sadness. I mean it was like 20 to 30 minutes of literally wailing. If you had walked by you would have thought I was you know really in agony and just cry it all out and he could take it and I could just let it go, let it go, let it go at the top of my lungs sometimes and barely breathing at other times and getting it all out. And then Mindy very gently had me walk to the other side of Rocky and once again lay my heart over his midsection and to receive all of life's love for me and it brought me to tears, but to a different kind of tears and was so incredibly, incredibly, incredibly healing. And that was a a giant step forward on my journey. And once
0: that experience happened, you probably felt free and happy and perfect then, right? I wouldn't go so far as to say (laughs) perfect.
1: (laughs) Uh, I definitely felt freer, happier. (laughs) Um, uh, I, I stay away from the perfect word, though I know our souls are all perfect perfect, but my humanity is very present to me day in and day out. So perfect's not a word I use very often, but I did definitely um, move forward in being the kind of person I wanted to be, not held back by life.
0: Had you felt that life was holding you back?
1: Uh, Well, I suspect in retrospect, it wasn't life holding me back. It was me allowing the circumstances in my life to hold me back, Um, my own doubts, my own Um, since, you know, for a long time, I didn't feel worthy, even though I was a highly accomplished person, a professor um, who's accomplished a lot of really great things in my life. But I still wasn't present to my own worthiness as a human being and as a spiritual being. So this work um, with the horses brought me in touch with that. And I could see that life really is on our side. Life wants us to be happy. Life wants us to learn and grow. And sometimes learning and growing can be painful. Um, I was kind of one of these people, I grew up in a family where working hard was really where it was at. And I don't remember my parents ever telling me, Kim, you should be happy. Life was not about happiness. Life was about working hard and pleasing people. And I could work hard really well and I could please people really well, but I wasn't happy. I didn't know that happiness was important. So only in the past few years have I realized that part of my job in life is to give myself happiness, to generate happiness, to be happy. And so every day now I look to see, okay, what can I do to bring myself joy? What can I do to bring myself happiness? And no longer do I look to other people to make me happy, which I think is a stellar achievement because I used to think, oh, my partner should make me happy. This person should make me happy. My parents should make me happy. Um, And I now know that my happiness is in my hands, my hands, and no one else's is after you freeing because I'm not at the mercy of other people. And uh, I'm pretty good at making myself happy. So in fact, I've given myself an A as a professor for making myself happy. And I'm a leadership professor and I teach my students something I call the leadership imperative of happiness. And I suspect that's not in any textbook. I've never found a textbook that talked about how important it is for leaders to be happy and to focus on generating happiness. And yet I see that as very important.
0: You mentioned about working hard and not being happy and teaching leadership and happiness. Where did that all stream from?
1: My own life journey, what I've learned along the way. um, I've had a lot of experience in government, in corporate America, in academia now. I've been a professor for a couple decades. And um, all of it has had me come face to face with, um, I would say, my own humanity, as well as my own spirituality. And I do my best to share my journey with my students. My students are adult learners, roughly ages 25 to 65. And so they've been out in life for a while and they're returning to school largely to get their degrees. Um, And so I consider my journey to be, I guess, the best textbook because I can share what I've learned and what I've experienced and uh, important lessons I've learned along the way.
0: You know, we all learn lessons and I wonder what they are to be able to provide leadership in our own way, you know?
1: Yeah, um, I think leadership lessons, first of all, I consider all of us to be leaders. I'm not talking about positional power, whether you're a vice president or a director or somebody in government. I think all of us are leaders in our own little corner of the world, that we have the opportunity to um, make a difference and to live true to our values. And I consider that to be be a cornerstone of leadership
0: in your own life. You probably are your own leader in some way, right?
1: In a lot of ways, I hope. (laughs) Yeah, I don't, I frankly don't want anybody else to lead me. I mean, I'm a great follower when I need to be. And when I say to this person, okay, you have a lot to teach me, please, you know, I I will follow you in this area. But for the most part, I now believe I know myself better than anybody else knows me. I didn't used to always believe that. And so I want to lead my own life. I think that's really, really really important.
0: Yeah, it it is. It is very important that we are the leader of our own life in some way, you know?
1: Yes. I I think the opposite of that for me is being on automatic where I'm not consciously making decisions or taking steps or taking action, but just kind of like on cruise control or automatic. Um, And when I'm on automatic, I tend to get in trouble. I tend to find myself in a ditch somewhere, literally or metaphorically. I'm not as honoring of myself or other people when I'm on automatic. So I do my best to live consciously, to live wakefully, mindfully, and um, treat people as I would want to be treated.
0: That is that. That is the way we all want to be. What you just described, we all thrive to figure out how we can get there, you know? Yes.
1: And it's a long, circuitous route.
0: <laughs> I wish it was a shortcut.
1: Uh, I Yeah, we might say that, Erin, but knowing you, I don't think you really want the shortcuts. I think um, you're happy to be on the journey that you're on and let it take you where it takes you. And I don't know, the times I've taken shortcuts, it's like, I'll tell you, here's something I could say. I finished college in three years instead of four with a double major and I did very well. I was not an A student. It wasn't 4.0, but I did well. Now, that could be considered a shortcut and yet it cost me greatly because I was either studying or on my job working to put myself through school school. And for the most part, I miss the social aspect of college. And so the shortcut that I took to finish in three years instead of four, I didn't know it at the time, but it cost me greatly. So it's had me learn to really question whether or not I wanted to take the shortcut that maybe not taking the shortcut is really in my long-term best interest, even though at the time I thought, oh, I'll just do this. Um, so I, I do have that as a regret. So I, I'm careful about shortcuts.
0: Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. You know, we all want a shortcut, but it can be quite, quite dangerous. Tell us about why you went to, into study business and leadership.
1: Well, my original studies were journalism and political science when I was in college. Um, and I wanted to make a difference. I wanted to make the world a better place. And I thought journalism, political science was was a way to do it, that I would be a reporter and then I would eventually be a senator in the government of the United States. And while I never um, became a senator, obviously, or not obviously, but I never became a senator, I decided I didn't want to run for elective office. I have always, ever since I was 9, 10, 12, 14 years old, I dedicated myself to making the world a better place. And uh, I was able to do that by originally being an investigative reporter where I could report on what was happening where I lived and worked. And then um, in various forms of government, I um, helped in way back when, a long time ago, I um, represented the governor to women's groups when and women's rights were first coming into the fore, then had other roles. And when I look back at my career, the, the common thread in all the jobs I had, even as a kid at age fourteen, was being a change agent, really looking for how to change things for the better for the most people.
0: Oh, I love that change. You like to create change and at the age of 14. You're a real rebel in some way, you know?
1: Yes, I was. I was. I, I, uh, I've always been a rebel. I would see the system and I would like, how could we improve it? How could we change it? I was kind of against the status quo. I remember even in high school, you know, a lot of things were going on that I didn't think were right. And I would speak up about them sometimes getting in trouble. Here's a story, Erin. This is, I haven't thought of this for a long time, but I was a teacher's aide in in one of the classrooms in my high school. And I was there to assist the English teacher, um, Mrs. Nagel. I will never forget her. In the back row, one of the kids was smoking in school, in the back row, in the classroom. And so I went to him and said, Daniel, I'll never forget this. I said, Daniel, stop smoking. If you smoke, I'm going to have to report you. And he said, well, I can get away with it because Mrs. Nagel is out to lunch most of the time. She was older and, you know, was caught up in other things and wasn't so, you know, classroom management wasn't her thing. And I said, yeah, but Daniel, she might not see you, but I see you. And please don't do this, Daniel. I really like Daniel. He's a great kid, you know, whatever. Well, he kept smoking. So I reported him to Mrs. Nagel. And she said that I was trying to make her look bad and say that she was incompetent. And that, of course, nobody could be, no one could be smoking in her classroom. And that I had made this whole thing up. Well, long story short, it gets reported to the principal. And there was this whole investigation. And Daniel did not admit to smoking. And lots of things happened. But anyway, eventually I was barred from the National Honor Society because they said I lied about this incident. And it was heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking because I knew Daniel was smoking and I was telling the truth. And before I graduated, but after I had been barred from the Honor Society, he went and confessed. But I went through a whole year of being shunned because they thought I was lying for some reason. So, you know, telling the truth and speaking up doesn't always work. And yet, in the end, I hope the truth wins out, as it did with Daniel. But I paid a high price.
0: Yeah, that's the thing. We pay a high price for sometimes telling the truth, you know, and we, realize we can leave a mark on us or a scar later in life, you know.
1: Yes, that's really true. And now with my students, I encourage them to speak up and speak out about injustices, about workplace issues, especially if they relate to safety issues, public safety issues, employee safety issues. And yet I admit to them that the outcome may not always be what they want or expect. You know, I was once a whistleblower at the company where I work, where there were public safety issues. And if there had been an accident, literally millions, of the people could have been affected. And when I spoke up about these issues, I lost my job. And I had to continue or I chose to continue um, advocating for the safety issues to be resolved while I was outside the company. And I was shunned by a lot of people. Um, people who had been my colleagues and friends for many years could not associate with me anymore. I lost financially. I lost everything really but my soul. Unfortunately, we were able to get the safety issues addressed, and I I would never undo what I did, even though it it cost me a lot personally, but I wasn't prepared for the cost. I thought, of course, people are going to care about the safety issues, and they're going to support me, Um, but it didn't go down that way, and so as I encourage my students and anyone to speak up and speak out about um, important issues, there's no guarantee of what the outcome is going to be, and yet to not exercise our voice and to tolerate injustice to me also is not wise and is not it's not in keeping with the values that i have of making the biggest difference possible with my life now that's not to say i speak up and i speak out about everything um but i do encourage us to exercise our voice
0: yeah i totally agree what made you decide to become a whistleblower
1: I heard about these safety issues. I asked other people who had been there longer and had more technical knowledge about the issues to speak up. And one of them who'd been there 13 years and was a high level executive said, Kim, I can't afford to speak up because I have three kids to put through college. And what if I get fired? And I said, get fired? You're not going to get fired. And he said, I can't take the risk. And I said, well, if you can't, I certainly will. And uh, then I did. And he was right. I got fired. Uh, which was what he was afraid of. There was so much at stake. It wasn't a small issue, it wasn't even It could have been disastrous. And I felt it was my moral obligation, my spiritual obligation, my I mean, there was no way out for me. There was no way I was gonna be silent. There was no way and there was no way at all. I I did however do it a little bit naively by thinking, Oh yes, everyone will jump on the safety bandwagon. We've been telling employees safety first, safety first, safety first, please speak up about safety issues. And I thought it would be taken seriously and then it didn't go down that way for quite a while. And yet now now the whole industry
0: is much safer and I'm glad for that yeah I'm glad that it is more safer but that must have been hard to digest making that risk and seeing your whole life could you know blow up into smoke you know
1: yeah it was it was a really difficult time and and it took me to a deep place of self-doubt Aaron it took me to a place of how could I have misjudged this situation how could I not have realized I would not have been supported how could I have counted on these people and then them deny what was happening, because I really believe in the goodness of the people. But sometimes, in this case at least, profits were more important than the safety, and that that was sad. And I think, you know, we're in this time of the pandemic, we're in this time of the vaccines being created and all of that. And I would hope that if safety issues come up, um, for example, about the vaccines, that they would get voice instead of sugarcoating and saying, oh, we're going to go forward anyway because it's not that big a deal. So I I notice I have my guard up a little bit about current events and, and hoping and praying that all be done appropriately and with public safety first because the last thing we want is a disaster bigger than the pandemic itself.
0: Oh yeah, for definite, you know, when we're all safe, we're happy, and when we're not safe, we're not happy. And like you just said, is it truth or sugarcoating? And I think my I hear for you is I want to know the truth, if it's safe or not, but regardless of if it can benefit the population yeah. or me, you know? Yes. Where does the element of honesty and truth fit in you as an individual?
1: Oh, honesty and truth. It's interesting. I was talking with someone today about truth and, you know, I'm really left with what there's my truth. Maybe there's your truth and there's their truth and what is really true. Um, Even fact these days, there's your facts, my facts and their facts. Um, so where I've come out on this really for my sanity is to just do my best to be true to my soul, because I realize sometimes my brain, my mind, um, thinks different things at different times. Um, and so I, I don't often anymore trust my mind because I know facts, facts, events, memories can get distorted. Um, I know just a, a thimble full about, you know, the neuroplasticity of the brain and how, um, Things aren't always as they appear. So I do my best to just check in with my soul, my spirit and look for my truth there. And usually it's pretty crystal clear. if I give it time and actually get quiet and listen. That's actually where my book came from.
0: Tell us about how this amazing book came about. Let your soul unrip to the world and let it dance and show the magic that you've produced.
1: Thank you very much. I appreciate being able to share about it. So the name of my book is The Soul of America Speaks, Wisdom for Healing and Moving Forward. It's available on Amazon. It came out a few months ago, last November. And this is not a book I set out to write. In the fall of 2019, a little more than a year ago, I knew I was meant to write a book. I knew it was due to come out in the fall of 2020, and that's about all I knew. And I took myself on a writing retreat with a group of people, and we were all committed to writing transformational books. And I went there and I kept saying, what is this book about? And I would come up with a topic like vote with love because the US was having an election in 2020. Maybe it's vote with love, or I wasn't sure, Aaron, I wasn't sure at all. And I'm literally, almost literally banging my head against the wall. You know, this isn't it. This isn't it. This is what is it? What is it? I'm kind of like saying to the universe, to God, what is this book I'm supposed to write? And I go to my hotel room to get a sweater, taking a break from the writing retreat. And I hear the newscaster say, we're battling for the soul of America. Now, I had heard that phrase before, but this time I heard it newly. And I said to myself, gee, I wonder what the soul of America has to say. And I heard this voice, not audibly, but in my heart say, why don't you ask her? She will talk with you. And I got this chill down my spine and had tears in my eyes. And it was like, oh my gosh, there's something called the soul of America that's a being, some kind of spiritual being, and she's gonna talk to me. And I went back down, grabbed my sweater, went back down to the retreat room where my laptop was. And I started typing as fast as I could, really without thinking. And here's what came out. If we get quiet enough to listen, quieter than we have ever been, quieter than we knew was even possible, the soul of America will speak to us if we ask. And while that may sound like an audacious, illogical, you've got to be kidding me thought, I say only this, try it, I did. And this book is about what happened, what I heard, and what I believe the soul of America is saying to all of us. Aaron, that became the preface to my book. And I knew as soon as I typed that that, oh my, I've got to get quiet and really listen. And so I decided to schedule a seven day, all silent solitude retreat um, that I went on a few weeks later I borrowed a friend's lake house and it was just me, my journals, not even my laptop. Journals, pens, me, some food. And I stayed in this cabin, this house for seven days, no contact with the outside world, no iPhone, no television, no anything. And I listened and I wrote. And I left that retreat with 600 pages of messages from the soul of America that I have since distilled into this book. And they are exquisite, wise, soulful guidance for living in these times. In fact, it was pre-pandemic when this came to me and I got these messages. And one of the first messages I received was this one, stop, get quiet and listen. Not knowing that the pandemic was almost going to force us to stop, get quiet and listen. I mean, circumstances conspired to have us socially distance and not be together as we were. So my book is full of messages from the soul of America. And she wants to speak to everyone. You don't even have to be an American. All she asks is that we get quiet and listen, and she will speak if we ask. And I invite you and all your listeners to do that. I don't have the corner on her. She's available to anyone and everyone willing to stop, get quiet, and listen, and ask her to speak. And she will
0: when you say she's open to everyone is this like the universe or is this just a soul that just comes in and whispers to people's ears
1: uh well she hasn't whispered in my ears i don't hear her that way she whispers to me in my heart and soul but who knows how she'll speak to you erin she may whisper in your ears she may speak in all kinds of ways I don't know how she's gonna speak to you, but she speaks to me in my heart. And often when I sit down to write, she will write to me. I actually move the pen, but she's the one giving the messages. Um, How about if I read one or two messages from the book?
0: Yeah, that'd be perfect.
1: I just open the book. I'll read each message is roughly a page. Some of them are a little bit longer. This message is called Guide. It is time for your heart's desires to guide you, dear one pain and heartache and suffering have held you hostage long enough it is time now to revel in the ground you have taken and celebrate celebrate the mountains you have climbed the peace you have made the footing you have regained allow your heart's desires to guide you once again you will reap what you sow, and again in time celebrate what heart's desire is guiding you right now. What does that speak to you, Aaron?
0: It speaks to me in many many ways, but the heart guides us to be who we want to be, and who it's like you know our voice is where our heart speaks from, and yeah. it guides us to the direction of where we want to go in some way. You know, what does that say for you?
1: It says for me that the time of being led by my pain and my heartache is over and that my desires can lead the way now. So when I first received that message, it was like turning a page or starting a new chapter. My sense is these messages were first and foremost for me. They were what I needed to hear at that time in my life hopefully now have relevance and reverence for the people who will receive them. This one is called No One, and it's so appropriate for this time of the pandemic, and yet it came to me, as I said, before the pandemic even started. No one, no one dies alone, dear one, no one. This is especially relevant in these times, yet has always been true. On a soul-to-soul level, you are connected with every living being, especially those you love. You can will your soul to be fully present to the sick, the dying, and even the dead, whether in a hospital, on a battlefield, at home, or even in the morgue. You can do this with anyone, a beloved, a friend, even a stranger, and many people at the same time. Yes, you have that power and like speaking with me, you only have to make the choice. It is an act of the will. In the blink of an eye or a faint whisper, you can send your soul right there and be present. All it takes is courage and faith. Humanity's interconnectedness makes this possible. Allow this truth to comfort you and please spread the word. Death is hard enough. You need not compound the pain by thinking that your loved one died alone if you were not physically present. Rest assured, just as no one lives alone, no one dies alone, no one. Will you send your soul to comfort the dying?
0: You know what, Kim, when I, when I hear you read the, those two passages and, and I read the book, it reminded me of that scene in Pocahontas where, you know, Pocahontas is speaking to the, the mother tree and the mother tree is giving this wisdom. And uh, even when I speak this, I get goosebumps, but I think that's what your book is. It's like that mother tree in Pocahontas giving Pocahontas wisdom to be able to, you know, the troubles in her life. And I feel that, you know, our soul has all the answers, but yet we don't listen to it. And when we do listen to it and stop and let it ruminate and linger into what it It needs to be for us to apply the message It happens.
1: I couldn't agree more, Erin, and that, you know, in this busy, chaotic, challenging, sometimes hurtful world, we are called into the silence, into the quiet, into the place of our very soul where I believe all wisdom resides. And like you said, it, it's up to us to tap into that wisdom, to listen. And uh, the messages in this book are just the tip of the iceberg and believe that they shed light on what's possible when we take that time.
0: You know, it's interesting as if someone who wants to be a journalist and, you know, with a blur her voice, the book has really mirrored who you are in a way of giving the messages of the soul out through you to be able to say, look, this helped you in your life, but let's see how we how this book can help people in their lives across the world, you know.
1: Thank you for that, Erin, because I have begun to see that I was prepared my whole life to write this book, to be the, the avenue for the soul of America, the soul of life to be heard. If you had told me even two years ago that I was going to be writing this book, I would have said, you got to be kidding me. I don't even know if there is such a thing as the soul of America or the soul of life or or whatever. And yet everything I went through prepared me. The demise of my marriage, the times when I was brokenhearted, the, the abuse I went through, the getting fired. It's like everything has prepared me for this time and to have this mission of bringing forth a soul of america's voice to the world and i have a sense that my next book i do know that there's a next book will maybe be the soul of god speak or the soul of life speaks that even though she came to me as the soul of America, and some of her messages are about what's happening in our country, what's happening in America is really happening in many ways all over the world. Um, So I just feel so humbled and also gratified that what I went through was worth it, because I would not want to, looking back now, spare myself any of that, because it brought me here to this opportunity to make her voice heard near and far. I mean that you're interviewing me you're not even in the United States yes. and yet you cared enough to um, reach out to me and invite me to be on your podcast and all the people around the world who will get to hear this I'm really deeply grateful and deeply gratified and very humbled.
0: Thank you. And also it's great to get to chat to you in a way that people can hear who you are and what you are because we read the book it's like, oh yeah, that's that. And we forget about the writer. But I think the soul of America is everyone's diary in some way where they can open it and get a message. And also our own soul speaks in a way that, you know, that makes the magic of every individual. It's like their superpower, but yet we have to listen and stop and be quiet to allow that power to bubble up.
1: Yes, and I'm the first to admit it's not easy to do that. Uh, it's not easy to stop, get quiet, and listen. I find myself going through my day and thinking, oh my gosh, I forgot to check in with Soul. I wonder what she has to say today. And sometimes I even go a few days. And if I go a few days, then I start to see things are getting a little awry. I'm not as sharp. I'm not as mindful. I'm not as compassionate and caring I was at the post office today, and a man blocked the post office street for like seven minutes, and I was seething, and I was like, I was cursing him a little bit, and I said, I'm cursing the sacred soul. I believe that people are sacred. In fact, maybe I could end on that note, this final message about people are sacred. But it's not like my humanity doesn't take over. But I think if we just add a little bit more quiet and a little bit more listening to our lives, the, even five minutes a day, soul says, give me five. She said, just give me five minutes. Five minutes a day makes a really big difference. So I invite people to do that. Give her five, give her five. How about if I read the final message for for now, Erin? If I had to distill the book into one message, it would be this one called sacred. People are sacred. You are, all are. Each and every person is a sacred being. No matter their lot in life, no matter their birthplace, no matter what they have done or not done, people are sacred. Life is sacred. Embracing this sacredness is in itself sacred. Life radically alters when this seeps into our very bones and sources our actions. Imagine our nation and the world if everyone lived this truth. Then what looks impossible becomes possible. An America that works for everyone is then within reach. A world that works for everyone is then possible. And dear one, the sacred begins with you. You are being called to live this truth in every corner of your life. People are sacred, including you. How will you answer this call?
0: No, Kim. The one reason I, I'm doing this podcast is to identify how we all live amazing lives, but yet we have a form of disability or disabled in our lives. What you just read is a huge po a huge flag in the in the top of the mountain saying, This is what we all are. We're sacred beings here on the planet to show the amazing ability and power that we have in us that bubbles out the external world. And thank you for sharing that.
1: Erin, what a beautiful picture you paint of us flying a flag that says people are sacred. I've never thought of that. And yet imagine not just flying a flag, but living true to that, but that we would have a symbol I just appreciate that picture that you painted for me with your words. And uh, I may just, in fact, have a flag made that says, people are sacred, including you. Thank you for the joy, the privilege, the honor of being here today, Erin. You asked questions that took me deep. I'm like, where's he going with this question? And uh, time has flown by and I'm so, so, so delighted and grateful to have been with you.
0: Kim, if if someone wanted to figure out one piece of advice that you learned throughout writing the book and everything experienced right now, what would it be? I would say dance
1: with your sacredness. Dance with your sacredness and the sacredness of life.
0: Awesome. If people want to go buy the book or get in touch with you or go and find out more, where can they go?
1: The book is available on Amazon. Once again, the title is The Soul of America Speaks. And you can also reach me at my website, the Soul of com. I answer every email that I get and I would love to hear from you.
0: Kim, it's been a pleasure having you on the show and getting to hear everything about you and get to get a little sample of the book. And thank you so much.
1: Thank you everyone. Be well. Thank you.
0: I'm so